Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I am your host, Marianne Petrie. This episode of Slam the Gavel is sponsored by CPS Protect Consulting Services. A child protective services case is one of the most frightening experiences for any parent. Don't face it alone. Face it with confidence with urgent assist by CPS Protect. You can have access to former CPS investigators to make sure you preserve your rights and protect your family. If you're facing CPS involvement and aren't sure where to turn, their child welfare consultants can help you. Visit cpsprotect.com forward slash subscribe and enter the coupon code slam the gavel for 60% off your first year of urgent assist. And this is available in all 50 states. I have another announcement. Bradley's mother, Narcus Golden, passed away in the fall of 2022. Bradley is autistic and needs structured and routine therapies he receives for his autism six days a week. However, Italy just entrusted Bradley to the Italian Social Services. If he is ruled to go back, he will then face the next three to four years in the Italian foster care system where he can't speak or understand the language. He will be taken away from the only family he has ever known. Please call Governor Hochul, New York State, at 518 478390. That's Governor Hogel, 518-474-8390. To please keep Bradley here safe in these United States. Hashtag keep Bradley safe. Also, go to the site, please do your job.com. We need 2,500 more signatures to get a case reopened. That's please do your job.com. And I've got a brand new guest. I'm so happy to have on Dr. Eric Nelson. And he's a PhD, and he has written the book, um, Living and Working with Evil People, a survival guide, which I think everyone should read. And it summarizes scientific knowledge about evil people, presenting it in a clear and easy to understand language. It reveals the inner workings of the mind, heart, and soul of evil people. So you can understand why they will always harm others, cannot stop doing it, and cannot be redeemed. Also, this provides the evil person identification test, which is EPIT, to help you know who is evil. And it also teaches you to strategize to avoid being harmed by evil people. And I think this is the most magnificent book. And I totally appreciate you, Dr. Nelson. How are you? you? And what prompted you. you to write this? this is yeah, amazing. right. Honor to be, uh, be on your show. I've watched a few of your episodes and I just uh, I'm astounded by the level of raw humanity that gets covered. Um, And I got to say, just as I was listening to you open and talk about your sponsor, I'm really glad there's a resource like that. Don't know anything about this sponsor, but just the idea that people that used to work in the CPS system now using their insider knowledge to help people that may be trapped in really bad cases. I mean, they I'm going to go look them up later. I, I was really impressed. Okay, so what made me write this book? Well, uh, what's out there on evil tends to be religious books. And I thought, well, there's a fair amount of the population that are, uh, they may be religious, but uh, they want to look at things scientifically. Now, I'm a scientist. I'm an empirical scientist. I've done a lot of very complex studies. So I said, you know, I want to find a book that has a scientific approach to the understanding of evil, the evil personality disorder. And I couldn't really find the book I was looking for. So I said, well, you know, I think I may have to write it. 
in the process, I think I acquired probably the world's largest library of non-religious books that describe the characteristics of the evil personality disorder. And that library is not very big, maybe six or eight, 10 books, something like that. A few journal articles, not that big. But what I did is I simply had the standard, if it's not religious and it is scientific, I'm going to use it. Mm -hmm. So that's what caused me to write the book is just this desire to have a scientific approach to understanding evil. It's not just a religious concept. I mean, the average evil person that you run into, it's not usually in a religious setting. It's in the setting of life. Mm -hmm. And they could be your next door neighbor. They could be your boss. Yeah. Or your spouse, mm -hmm. could be your children. I can't rule out the possibility that even somebody watching this show might be evil. By the way, a really interesting thing, there are a few, not many, but there are a few uh, books or articles written by people that are diagnostically uh, sociopath. But uh, the ones who have written are what would be called ethical sociopaths, which are, they know they're a sociopath. They know they don't actually care about the feelings of others. They know they're really centered on themselves, but they want to live in society uh, as a relatively normal people. So for them, they memorize the rules and live the best they can. One of them is a professor in the University of California. I want to say he's in Irvine. Fascinating read. So when we talk about the evil around us, uh, we're not strictly, we're, we're only talking about people that do bad things. There are people that have components of the evil personality disorder. Sociopathy is one of them. But that doesn't automatically mean they have the evil personality disorder. So it's a good distinction to make. There are people around us who are sociopaths who may not be evil, but every evil person who does evil things has six characteristics, and one of them is sociopathy. Now, a sociopath, they're born, not made that way. I think that's fair to say. I think that's what the research literature shows. Um, there are people who may be harmed, who may adopt these type of behaviors. But when you look at your, I'm going to use a word, pure sociopath, someone who's just had very clear indicators from an early age. Um, yeah, there may not be, it may not be trauma induced. That may have been older thinking, but yes, just like, frankly, uh, I'll say it because I think it's uh, start, it's borne out by the empirical literature. People generally are born gay. You're either gay or you're not, uh, mm -hmm. or maybe you're bisexual. And you look at the really early childhood and you see that far be far before what they know what sexuality is. Well, it's the same thing. Uh, and I could tell you, I had an interesting situation. Uh, when I was a police officer, uh, I had a investigation. I'm gonna, obviously going to conceal some of the facts uh, with a young person. Uh, around the age of seven, uh, who was killing animals, mm. uh, who was going into people's homes and stealing a very particular item and then hiding them in a certain place, had his little collection going. And I remember when I went out there and talked to this young person, it was a young boy. I, I put my arm around him. His, his family member was there and uh, just said, hey, you know, and we just had a talk. And he was like a normal kid. In many ways, wanted to talk about baseball, you know, and different things, but yet very clearly and from practically the day he could walk, he was already showing these sociopathic behaviors. So, yeah, there does seem to be. And that's why you know, getting back to the evil personality disorder, uh, people don't choose. And this isn't a defense of them. 
I'm going to argue you need to be ethical evil. You need to learn the rules of being good and do it. Mm -hmm. But this seems to be something that really goes back to childhood and isn't necessarily trauma connected. You know, do you think it could be inherited? Uh, I was reading somewhere that you can inherit your grandparents' personality. I don't know that I can answer that. I don't believe that I saw that in the books that I read. I think there's some, I think it's called a concordance rate. I think there is some evidence for concordant rates uh, in sociopathy and psychopathy, but I'm not going to touch on those because, uh, you know, although I do, one of my graduate degrees is in the field of psychology. Uh, I wouldn't present myself as an expert on necessarily the concordance rates, but I'll just say uh, the cases that I've looked at, generally speaking, I haven't necessarily seen it in other family members. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think part of it is the truly evil personality. Uh, I, I'm not going to say it's common and I'm not going to say it's rare because I think we all know at least one or two evil people may not know it, especially if they're trying to be good. Uh, but I can't say that I have a strong knowledge on how much of it's inherited. And let's distinguish, by the way, children can be taught to do evil things. It doesn't mean they have the evil personality disorder. In fact, I think it's fair to say the vast majority of evil that's committed is committed by people that don't have the evil personality disorder because we are all, every one of us, every single one of us capable of and have done evil. So that's not diagnostic for the evil personality disorder. The evil personality disorder is very specific. And yes, those people do evil, but not all people that do evil have the personality disorder. That's interesting. So then I guess people are going to wonder, well, then where does a psychopath come in? Well, okay. So understand the research community needs to jump into this and do a lot of studies. In some senses, I feel like uh, Freud or Darwin, I'm not in there. <laughs> I'm not at their level, but I'm just saying sometimes there's people that say, hey, there's something going on. That I'm describing it the best that I can. Okay, come on in, everybody. Let's do some empirical study and really look at this further. So in that sense, uh, I think that I'm saying I observe six kind of fundamental characteristics and every single one of them has to be present. Uh, for me to believe that we're dealing with an evil personality disorder. Four of them, I'm just going to kind of just say what they are, but I don't think we should spend time going over them because people can research them on their own. Two Mm -hmm. of them are kind of unique, and that's what I want to spend time on. So the four more common ones are going to be psychopathy, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, psychopathy, which is lack of empathy, lack of remorse, ego-driven, skilled at deception, things like that, manipulative, callous. Sociopathy, somewhat similar, manipulation, deceit, lack of empathy. Sadism, that's going to be somebody who gets pleasure by causing or witnessing the suffering of a sentient being. What's a sentient being? It's a being that can feel and react to pain. So they're not going to get very satisfied by watching a bacteria uh, get sprayed with Lysol and pass away but they would get uh, satisfaction from uh, watching some type of a creature. It could be human, mm-hmm. animal, insect, 
that can feel pain and is experiencing pain. So what's revolting to us is pleasurable to them. And the fourth one is malignant narcissism, severe and destructive, kind of like the godlike complex. I am God. Everybody around me is not God. And they, I'm, I'm bothered that they don't realize that I'm God. Mm -hmm. uh, they tend to also dehumanize others. Okay, so those are the four that I'm not going to spend time on. The other two, I wouldn't necessarily claim that I'm completely the originator of them. Because again, I've read pretty much every book and journal article that's not religious that deals with the topic of the evil personality. And from them, these are the two that I've derived. And at most, maybe I just get the credit for coming up with the word. So the fifth category is going to be bloodlust. Bloodlust. And that is a driving need to witness suffering. A driving need to witness suffering. And so uh, in the book, I sometimes refer to the people with evil personality disorders, vampires, because mm -hmm. it's a good example of, you know, the vampire has to drink blood to survive, according to the mythology. And they need blood just like we need oxygen or just like I need a Red Bull. Sometimes. Yes. <laughs> they 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 have this bloodlust, but it's not necessarily for the actual liquid. It's red blood. But what they need is suffering. And the sixth one is a complete lack of conscience. They may know that they broke a rule, but they don't care unless, of course, in breaking the rule, there's a consequence. But their commitment is not, well, I'm not going to break that rule again because that's the right thing to do. Their commitment is, how can I figure out how to break that rule again and not have the consequence? These are people, and this is a, an interesting part of the lack of conscious, is they can actually perform having a conscience. They can go to church with you, sit in the pew next to you, be horrified by the sin that the pastor's talking about. But it's all a performance. You inside, for example, you might go see the movie, um, what's the movie that just came out on child trafficking? Uh, Cry Freedom? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, they might go to that movie with you and be very shocked at all that they see, but really they're not. They just performed it mm -hmm. uh, because they don't have a moral code that says, well, what I'm seeing on screen is wrong. Uh, so some clues, by the way, for this one, lack of consciousness is you will tend to see justification. If they're trapped, they'll have they'll justify why it was OK for them to do this or that. Uh, and another thing is. Um, they will sometimes make misleading statements to try to steer you away from uh, knowledge that they've done something wrong. So at some level, there's a knowledge that they've broken a moral code, but it's not an internalized right or wrong. It's more like I got caught. So those are the six psychopathy, sociopathy, sadism, malignant narcissism, bloodlust, and lack of conscience. And the sad part is you see a lot of this in our world today. I think it's fair to say, uh, again, I want to make the distinction though. Not everybody who shows some of these characteristics has the evil personality disorder. They really need to have all six and have them very concretely. Now, a couple of other things, if you don't mind, I'd like to just kind of point out to help you kind of figure out who might be a vampire slash an actual real evil person. One characteristic is every evil person somewhere in their life has a suffering sentient. It might be they go home and they kick the dog. It might be that they go home and... 
they put the cat in the cage and rattle the cage to torment it. I'm not going to talk about any further. I don't want to go through. Mm -hmm. It could be that they have a child that they treat badly, a spouse that they treat badly. You know, we saw on the news last week, um, uh, a chemistry student was using a syringe to squirt some chemicals under the door of a neighbor he didn't like, right? That could be that chemistry student's suffering sentient, but they always somewhere, because remember for them, suffering is life. It's their lifeblood. So every, every one of them has a suffering sentient somewhere. Uh, another thing is... Uh, the only emotions they feel are for themselves. There's a series of videos on the internet about a mafia killer whose nickname is the Iceman. Mm -hmm. Fascinating to watch because the only time he gets emotional is talking about himself or his wife and children. You might say, well, but he's being emotional about his wife and children. Well, you could certainly argue possibly that he's just being emotional about himself and his loss of his wife and his children. In any case, they're just not going to show uh, emotions uh, for others. One thing that's really key about the evil personality disorder is it's like a person outside looking into a window. They know they're different. It bothers them that they're different. They know that they'll never be like the normals. They may pretend it, but at the end of the day, when they go to bed at night, they know they're different and they'll never be normal. And so in a sense, you can almost feel sorry for them, not because anything they've done warrants sorrow or sympathy, but sympathy in the sense that, as you mentioned, they're born into it and they can't get out of it. They'll never not be evil. Uh, there's a special subset that I think is worth talking about. That's going to be your high functioning vampire or high-functioning evil personality disorder. These are really, really, really smart people. And one of the characteristics about them is their disarming charm. And I've had the opportunity to watch a couple of these really high-functioning evil people for a considerable amount of time, one of them for a couple of years. It can be incredibly charming. And it's a specific type of charm. It's disarming, like it gets you to trust them. Something that's fascinating is, at least for the high functioning, they're not intellectual all the time. Intellect is like this tool that they use when it serves a purpose. There's a metaphor that I like uh, talking about or story. In the uh, book uh, Paralandra by C.S. Lewis, there's Dr. Weston, and he can put on his intelligence when he needs it, but when he doesn't need it, he uh, walks around on Paralandra and uh, torments little frogs. Mm. So intellect is a tool for uh, an evil personality person, but it's not necessarily who they are all the time. Another characteristic is the high functioning one. So these are gonna be the managers you work for, or, or maybe the high achieving person you're married to or whomever. Uh, they're very sophisticated at game playing and they may even go into a job where they get paid to do that. Uh, managerial, uh, I think you see a fair number of it among lawyers uh, and others that, who have to be very good at presenting, you know, one minute they're in front of the jury behaving one way, another minute they're in front of the judge behaving another way. Uh, you know, so very good at sophisticated game playing. 
Mm -hmm. uh, and if you get close enough to them where you try to point out mistakes that they've committed or wrongs that they've done to you, they absolutely reject any notion of personal guilt. And another characteristic of the high functioning is they're chronic liars, but they're very good at it. Now, when I got trained as an interrogator and later uh, when I actually did a lot of interrogations, one of the things you do to try to detect deception is you go to second and third level questions. You know, your first level question, well, here were you here at this day or that day? And they have a lie for you. Mm -hmm. But then you ask a question based on the lie and you ask another one that goes deeper and deeper to the point where they haven't prepared layers of lies. Well, a sophisticated evil person probably has. They probably thought through not only the initial lie, but the supporting lie and the supporting lie and the supporting lie. They're very good at lying. And you'd call that a perpetual liar, or is this worse than a perpetual liar? Chronic. Uh, well, lying is a tool, just like intellect is a tool. Uh -huh. Lying is a tool, just like charm is a tool. These are these are people that are sort of like it's the Japanese, is it called kabuki theater, where they put on a mask and then they put on another mask. These are all just tools. They're like arrows in their quiver. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yes, chronic lying is a tool that they use and they're good at it. Now. I was going through this and um, on page 40, mm -hmm. uh, as we were kind of talking about, they engage in sophisticated game playing. Yeah. Evil people reject any notion of responsibility for causing harm. And I mean, this is rampant throughout, you know, systems. I mean, either, you know, it could be at work. It could be the family courtroom, any courtroom, <laughs> You know, people just uh, participate in lies. And once the truth comes out, they're not even apologetic. So it's not going to happen. Right. The, the only regret is going to be that they got caught at it. Uh, yeah. Not all liars. Not all liars are evil. The uh -huh. act of lying is evil. Not all liars are evil. But if you've got somebody that's showing that characteristic, you may, if, you, if you're close enough to them, you may want to go back and look at the list of six and see if they actually meet the disorder. And I'll tell you why. The way that you treat a person who is a vampire, who is actually possessed of the evil personality, you treat them differently. There's a different set of rules. I've got those kind of explained, I think in chapter six and seven. Uh, and so the reason why you want to know what you're dealing with is because you want to know which set of rules. Do I work on just the regular rules that we use in life? Or am I actually dealing with someone who's evil because there's a second set of rules that I need to use for them? That's the essential reason why you want to figure out if you're dealing with an evil person. Do you think, I mean, like, I, I really think you're, this book, um, Living and Working with Evil People, I really think this should be part of a high school curriculum. <laughs> Um, you know, because, you know, these kids are more advanced than ever I was in high school. And I mean, I think this would save a lot of heartache when going out and dating when they're young and realizing what, a, you know, these vampires are. <laughs> so I've got two tools in the book. 
The first one, which is uh, in very great detail, it's called the Evil Person Identification Tool, uh, the EPIT. It's very lengthy. It's got four scales. And the only person who can really use this tool, are the, it's going to have to be used to try to figure out someone who's very close to you. In other words, you're married to someone for 10 years. You know them really well. You might go look at this tool and try to figure out what you're dealing with. Now, in big red letters in the book, it says, if you use this tool, ultimately it's only an estimation and you should never, ever, ever under any circumstances tell the person whether or not they seem to match the characteristics for evil because you're just going to make it worse. Mm -hmm. The purpose of it is to say, okay, the person I'm married to is, boy, this is sound, you know, they're getting high scores on these scales. Okay, good. Then go to uh, chapters, chapter eight. Yeah, that's right. It's been a while since I've read my own book. Chapter eight and see what you need to do. Now for the high school kids, the other scale would be reasonable to use because it's one you use with someone you don't know well. And I believe that's going to be on page 68. Let me get there real quick and I'll tell you. It's called the caution tool and it is on page. Just the version of my book that I have here. I'm looking at an electronic version here. Let me just grab the actual book right behind me here out of the bookshelf. Let's see what page it's on. Uh, I'm looking at chapter eight. Uh, once an evil person starts to harm you, they won't. Yeah. Uh, okay. So the caution tool, the one that would be good for high schoolers, looks like that's on page. That's so funny. I didn't realize 60, 59, 58, 57. I have to count backwards. Page 57 and 58. Some pages don't have the page numbers. Uh, okay. But the caution tool, which I don't mind sharing here, it's just for, you kind of use it on someone you don't know to know whether or not you need to be careful dating them or whatever. So here's the five cautionary indicators. The person tells lies. The person says mean things. The person is cruel. That person blames, falsely blames others for things they did not do. Mm -hmm. And they seem to lack empathy. So that's just the five cautionary indicators that you know, if you're thinking about going out with somebody and they tell lies, they say mean things, they're cruel, they blame others for things that the others didn't actually do, and they lack empathy, probably a good indication. Yeah, maybe there's some moms and dads out there saying, you know what, my kid needs to read this tonight, right? Yeah. Probably a good indication of the person you want to go out with, no matter how hot they are, uh -huh. no matter how popular they are, no matter what kind of car they drive, probably shouldn't go out with them. Okay, so, you know, by the way, this is, there's the Love book. It. I don't think I have it on the wall behind me. I have some of my other books on the wall behind me. Mm -hmm. So in chapter seven uh, of the book is really where you get to the important stuff. Okay, you did the EPIT. You're dealing with a spouse, a child, someone close to you who looks like they may have the evil personality. Uh, or... Um, or yeah, so you've got someone there. What do you do? 
So chapter seven is really where the survival guide starts. Uh, and the big one is this. Uh, if you can escape, do so. Mm -hmm. You can't always do that. You're married to them. You have a child in common. So even though you may not live with them anymore, you still have to encounter them every week for child exchange. Mm -hmm. But if you can, for example, if I worked for three years for a boss and it's just I've developed an ulcer and things are not good. And I finally buy this book and I know the boss well enough to, to use uh, the EPIT. And it comes back saying, you may be, may be dealing with someone that's actually evil. Because remember, the evil person has bloodlust. They want to harm you and others. And that will never change. It's born into them. Okay. So if you can, escape your vampire and never go back. Mm-hmm. Now, the rest of the chapter has, uh, or I guess we go into chapter eight. Uh, so chapter eight is where you have a whole series of survival strategies. If, in fact, you can't escape. So I'll read a couple off real quick. Uh, reduce their sadistic pleasure. How do you do that? Well, for example, just try to avoid being around them as much as possible. Uh, don't harm their ego. Mm. If you want to get in a battle of wills with an evil person and you harm their ego, if you were not their suffering sentient, you are now. They're going to devote their life to making you their suffering sentient. So protect yourself by don't harming their ego. Um, some other practical things. Try to keep them busy, especially if you have influence over, you know, things they have to do. Keep them busy. Keep yourself busy so you're not as available to be treated badly. Surround yourself with other people because sometimes if you're with your friends, the evil person can't come in and say something mean that's meant to make you suffer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another one is figure out ways to make them tired. Like, let's say you're married to the person uh, and you know that if you go out for a three-hour walk or a three-mile walk together and come home and feed them lots of carbs, they get sleepy and go to sleep. Well, there you go. That's a survival strategy, right? Mm -hmm. Another one that's hard is be submissive as you can. Mm Because remember, the opposition, the challenge, that may refocus them on, well, I did have the dog as the suffering sentient, but now it's you. Mm-hmm. right so much as you hate it sometimes being submissive and speaking in a quiet voice or whatever uh that's you're not interesting to engage with you're not interesting to cause suffering in because you're just not giving me the reaction i want and so on i'm not going to go through all of them but that's that's what that chapter's constituted of a lot of just different ideas on how to try to survive if you have to be around an evil person you know and that would probably also um fall under even working for someone, a boss, you know, someone who's just, you know, a lot of people just up and quit their jobs if they have to deal with that. And as you mentioned, sometimes in a relationship, you're trapped and you can't leave. There's no one to help you leave. Maybe you don't have parents to go to or a brother or sister. And, And you're just in a stuck in a horrible situation. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, the option to leave quickly may not exist, Mm -hmm. but sometimes we can make like a one-year plan, two-year plan, six-month plan, Mm -hmm. and incrementally, you set it up. Maybe you have to save some money so you've got an escape uh, fund. Maybe you have to uh, work out 
long-term where you're going to go because you may need people to show up, get you out of there, pack your stuff and the whole thing's done in an hour. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just, you may have to get the children's medical records, whatever. Uh, but if you can't leave right away, a lot of people should give thought to developing a longer term plan. You know, before people get married, do you think everyone should just sign a prenup? Um, <laughs> I've had someone on my podcast say, you know, why not sign a document saying, let's stay married for two years and see how that goes. That doesn't work. We can just walk away from each other or sign a document saying, we'll try it for five years. If that doesn't work. That way there's no stress of having to stay in a relationship because a lot of the times people marry someone and these characteristics don't come out for two years. They hide them. Well, so there's this concept of the narcissistic, narcissistic injury, the intrapsychic wound and prenup or no prenup. I think that at the point that you reject, move away from, Uh, a truly evil person it's unavoidable that they will try to harm you that's in their nature and it would make them happy it's the blood they need to feed on one of the things that gets developed in the book a little bit is the the use of consequences to offset evil Mm -hmm. Uh, in this case it might be maybe the prenup sets up some consequences such that if the evil person would try to make it painful for you to leave, uh, it triggers consequences in the prenup that might discourage that. So I think having not heard the prenup idea, and I'm going to think more about that over the next week or two, because it's an interesting concept. But my initial reaction is think about, see, why would you get a prenup with someone you already know is evil, right? That's something that's going to come out afterwards. So I think probably the best way to design a prenup would be something that facilitates a quick and complete separation. And it resolves all issues. If you have kids, it's already set up the custody, it's already set up the money. I realize those things are subject to challenge, but I will just say the general principle is get away completely and quickly and permanently Mm -hmm. if you can you know it's just so creepy (laughs) well i'm thinking of one case where uh a i'm actually thinking of several cases there are people that i work with um through an organization that i do some volunteering for and the one most successful case that i can think of where in this case it was the wife and it would not surprise me if she has a pretty high EPIT score. Mm -hmm. It was only consequences that caused her to back off and finally leave the husband, the ex-husband alone. Mm -hmm. The problem is not everybody's a leader. Not everybody has the guts to use consequences. You know, I think uh, evil people tend to select people that don't fight back. Right. Or if they fight back, it's really more just like they display their suffering, but they don't like actually, that's not really fighting back. 
there's just a lot of people that it's you know just like we talk about people may be born gay or people may be born sociopathic. I think it's fair to say a lot of people are born passive mm-hmm. and it's not in their personality to fight. Now, having said that, take, show me a completely passive person. And I promise you that if a pit bull starts chewing on their child, mm-hmm. that passive person will rapidly convert to not passive. My point is, I think even among the passive, it's possible to convert to aggressive, even if it's aggressive for self-defense. In dog training, uh, some dogs are very passive and happy-go-lucky and they just want to play all day, (laughs) but they may be of a breed that uh, is used in law enforcement and you don't need a passive, happy-go-lucky dog. You need them to grow up get adult thinking and uh, need they need to know how to be aggressive on command. And there's a particular form of training where uh, I'm not going to go through the details it's called table work. Mm-hmm. But what it does is it kind of triggers kind of a, not an angry, but like a, a, Oh, wow, this is for real. This isn't, you know, to do to do to do. No, this is for real. And I'm really being attacked right now. And I better respond. And that's the whole goal. It matures them. Well, I think that's true with even passive people. When something bad enough has happened, it changes you. Mm-hmm. You may not become an aggressive person all the time, but I'm not sure that passivity, I mean, passivity is like the playground of the evil. I can come over and torment you and you're not going to really do anything to me. So some amount of conversion of the, suffering sentient to stop being passive and to get angry and to fight back might apply some consequences. For example, one that just came to mind, someone who learns how to scream bloody murder so that the neighbors hear it. Well, all of a sudden, the joy of tormenting you with my words or hitting you all of a sudden becomes a liability because everybody in the apartment building hears you screaming, get your blankety hands off me, you monster. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, I think the bloodlust would quickly disappear. Hey, we need to find another sentient. This one's yelling and fighting back. Mm-hmm. Well, that's true. Um, you know, a lot of people that, you know, may not read this or they're just naive when they meet someone and they start, um, say, planning a wedding. And, you know, some people get unhinged during that time. Um, yet that passive person will say, oh, it's just the jitters or, you know, um, things like that. So they'll make excuses for this person. And uh, that this is not good because this is a, a red flag during these times of, you know, like either a major commitment or even going into college and you've got maybe a, a parent that may, might be, I don't know, just uptight about their child going to college for the first time and just, you know, getting unhinged, you know, how does a person know if these are red flags or is this something deeper? If you're asking, how does a person know if someone else is evil, uh, read my book, use one of the two tests, 
And if it is, and you get a red flag from there, then use the recommendations on what to do. I just gave the big one, which is disengage. Mm-hmm. You say, well, how do you disengage from a parent, especially if they're paying for college? Yeah. Well, you know, the book doesn't have an answer for all situations, but it does say, for example, minimize contact. Well, okay, how do you minimize contact while still getting mom or dad to pay for college on the assumption that they're evil? I'm not convinced they are because I, I, you know, just because your parents aggravate you doesn't mean they're evil. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and, and we should not, this, this is the fear that I have with this book and I've had it ever since it's been out. There are people who commit evil deeds, whether or not they're actually evil. Remember, anybody can commit an evil deed. There's plenty of sociopaths running around who may not be evil personality, but they're still a sociopath who will latch onto this book and say, aha, you're an evil person and use the material in the book to falsely accuse someone else. So great caution is Mm. needed. But I I took the risk of writing this book because, first of all, I think it's better to get information out than not. And secondly, uh, I know that it's helped some people. I've heard that it's helped some people. I've seen it help some people. And so the risk of the misuse of the book is outweighed by people who are truly suffering, who didn't, not everybody comes wired with an escape plan. That's why a lot of these uh, groups that help people who are victims have to explain what an escape plan is and, you know, and so forth. In your travels, you know, what is one of the worst cases you have ever seen of an evil person? Uh, Well, the first one that comes to mind, which I already shared, was that kid. I do know his name. And if I ever see it in the newspaper, I won't be surprised. Uh, another one that I'm thinking of, uh, and it's actually, I've seen, I'm have i going to describe it as a personality type because I've seen it a couple of times. Uh, these are people who are attracted to strong, successful others. But from a perspective of wooing them by figuring out what they want in a partner, performing that to get the person to fall in love with them and to marry them and then afterwards making the move to be the one who's in charge uh and the way that they do it is if the other person doesn't acquiesce remember this is the successful person they pursued and captured (laughs) whose heart they won if the person doesn't acquiesce to letting them now be the the leader of the relationship, they start chipping away. You know, one case I'm thinking of, uh, the, this case, it was a wife would call her very successful husband, an idiot. Mm -hmm. And over time he started calling himself an idiot, which meant he was internalizing it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've seen some one person, person i'm thinking of in particular pretty successful person really go into a decline because of this constant attack at home where you're most vulnerable out in the world you've got your thick skin on mm-hmm. you come home you're supposed to be able to take your pack off be more vulnerable but it was that very vulnerability that was being used to break this guy down mm-hmm. happy ending though he got away and he kind of bounced back. 
Not everybody's resilient, but he was. Uh, but yeah, I've seen that evil. Another evil that I see, I think most of the time, the ones who are doing it don't necessarily meet the six criteria or the evil personality disorder. Remember, anybody can commit evil. But I do see a fair amount of lying. This comes back to your topic. <laughs> lying in interpersonal matters. Lying about rape. Lying about domestic violence. Lying about child abuse. Mm -hmm. And so I I haven't studied it so much, although I did read a, a journal article on it this morning. But lying in to cause parental alienation, mm -hmm. right? And I think you you focus on parental alienation mm -hmm. a little bit. And it's interesting, of course, the ones who are going to be really good at it are going to be the high-functioning evil people. You're in trouble once they go to the level of making false accusations against you, either to the police or mm -hmm. to the court system. Mm -hmm. With all of these people, whether they're, not evil people but they're doing evil lying or they are evil people and they're doing the evil lying and it really satisfies their bloodlust one remedy always seems to be just the consequence what can you do to create such a consequence that they'll finally stop it easier said than done and can be quite expensive if it involves attorneys right mm -hmm. Uh, the one I'm thinking of one case, I really got to conceal the uh, specifics because it's ongoing right now. But when they started working with this individual, I had to coach him on documentation. A lot of people just don't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. When is it legal to film? Giving yourself permission to secretly film mm -hmm. when it's legal. How to save email and text messages and so forth. Uh, but just by doing that, he was able to show a pattern of abuse, which then could be turned into the form of a consequence in the form of, in this case, requesting uh, a restraining order, which, by the way, was successful. Hmm. Would you go as far to say, you know, some of these people, not all of them, do you think they could be demonically possessed? As crazy as that sounds. <laughs> we should okay, have done so this around Halloween. I'm remember sorry. Remember the first thing I said about I wrote a non-religious book on evil? <laughs> it was hard to do because there's so much, right? There's so much religious material on evil. I don't know that I am able to answer that question. Uh, I actually don't have an opinion on that one. You know, I've talked to people that were really, I don't know, we'll say evil or uh, dealt with an evil individual. And I went up to him and he, he was an attorney, but I went up to him and I said, you know, I was, I was nice. I said, you know, what would you do if your wife was doing this to you? Like I said, it really compassionately. And he looked at me with these reptilian eyes. <laughs> and then he kind of had a glimmer of, oh. But then he just, the, the reptilian eyes came back and he just walked away like he, he could care less. Well, it could be said that if, let's just say theoretically, that was an evil person. 
remember the only emotions they feel are about themselves mm -hmm. and the way you couch the question caused could have caused him to experience an emotion because it was related to himself so it's interesting you might have peeled back the onion for just a minute there a second maybe a split second <laughs> right right that's where you need the pounding of the gavel right yeah now we of course don't advocate violence don't go hit attorneys with gavels that was just a, a joke <laughs> Well, if judges would do their job and slam the gavel, we wouldn't probably be having even this conversation. <laughs> well, I got to say that it goes in another one of my books. I think it's right behind my head, The Judicial mm -hmm. War of Men, uh, which is by far the most thorough expose of how judges are trained on understands of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. I think it's fair to say if judges would just do their job, I think... Behind the curtain, you have judges who went to law school and they had to learn a little bit about every type of law, a little bit of insurance, a little bit of constitutional law, you know, contract law. They become an attorney. They may specialize family law or whatever. And then next thing you know, they're a judge. But it doesn't mean they actually have a lot of specific knowledge. Uh, and so you say, well, where do they get their knowledge? Aha, that's what I wrote the book about. Uh, the training that they receive to, in the case of my book, learn about domestic violence. And it's a, it's limited and frankly, it's appalling. Mm -hmm. So if a judge was asked to make a decision in a matter that involves allegations of domestic violence, and you think, well, if they just do their job, well, they don't really, if they haven't been given the full set of empirical facts, they might be operating on a bad set of facts that they were taught in a judicial training. Mm -hmm. So I really think some of the answer, not only to your interest in parental alienation, uh, my interest in allegations of domestic violence and rape that are false, others in criminal cases, I think the key to changing is not so much to get the job judges to do their job, but to assume they're operating on a wrong set of facts. And so the next step is to get in there and start doing good judicial training. Now, I will say, I think it's fair to say I'm probably one of the top experts on judicial training as it pertains to domestic violence. Read my book. You'll see for yourself. Mm -hmm. And yet, when I contacted uh, the Judicial Council of California, offered them a copy of my book and said, I'd like to come in and I'd like to give this book and put it in the library of the California Supreme Court and all the appellate courts. And I'd like to set up some training to present uh, a lot of the material that I know to be missing because I use the equivalent of the Public Records Act request, but there's in California, it's a Rule 10500 request. And I got their entire set of training, thousands of documents, lots of videos. I got everything. I was really impressed how forthcoming they were. So I'm able to say, I actually know what you're training these judges on because I've got it. And I'm probably the only person on the planet who has it. And so I'd like to come in and train on the stuff that's missing. Uh, I got a nice form letter that said, thanks, but no thanks. So yeah. I'm not saying that that's an example of how to get behind the robe and start doing the training. I can just simply say that's the direction for people to go. And maybe they have a, a better understanding of how to get there, especially attorneys. I think attorneys would have a good idea of how to 
get behind the robe and get involved in judicial training. Or by the way, just okay. to say Red Bull is not paying me to drink this drink. I'm doing it because this is what helps an old guy like me keep oh. up with a young guy like Marianne or a young lady like Marianne. <laughs> or these judges, really, I've talked to so many parents. These judges are disregarding evidence. Um, you know, yeah. in in whether it's a father or a mother, I mean, a father presented video to me to show me what the domestic violence even towards him and his child. And the judge completely disregards it, won't look at it, won't even entertain it. Also with another mother, she had evidence of the, the father smoking a joint in the car with the kid in the back seat. Judges don't look at it. I think people are being paid off. What do you think? Uh, I don't think they're being paid off. However, uh, I think one of the least understood concepts about judges is how they get away with doing things that we might say don't seem logical or fair. Mm -hmm. And it's best to understand it like this. There's a framework called the law. The law is either a statute or interpretation of a statute in an appellate decision but within that frame everything inside is subject to the judge's discretion mm -hmm. and you could give 10 judges the same set of facts and they might all handle them differently and believe it or not on appeal as long as they stay within the framework even though they do different things they wouldn't be overturned discretion is where judges have wiggle room to be fair or unfair. And I'll tell you an interesting, like a little insight on judges because judges can be very political. I have coded, so I've attended hundreds of hearings where domestic violence restraining orders were requested. I've attended hundreds of them and coded them for a study that I'm a very large study. And, and you can predict in advance before the hearing starts based upon having sat in a courtroom with judge A or B or C, you know where they're going to go with it because you know how within the frame their discretion is exercised. Uh, I actually had the opportunity. There was a group um, who politically I wouldn't agree with, but they approached me and said, would you help us analyze data? Mm -hmm. I said, of course, because you know, I love science. Well, they had sent like seven different people in to code hearings on multiple judges. And although their data wasn't great because they weren't empirical scientists, they nevertheless had done a good enough job that I could analyze it. And it was interesting because I was able to classify the judges uh, into there's some judges that say no all the time to everybody, both sides. Just forget it. This judge says no. Mm -hmm. Within that framework, that's the exercise of their discretion. Uh, the remainder of the judges were seemingly pretty fair to the parties. And there was one judge who significantly favored females over males. No question about it. And statistically proven. So some of it's the luck of the draw. But uh, do I think they're paid off? No. Do, do they come in with their own agenda? Yes. And 
So let's say a judge using domestic violence as an example, a judge doesn't really know a lot about DV. They just kind of know the standard feminist rhetoric of, you know, all men are abusers. Women only are aggressive in self-defense. That's one of the common feminist myths. Judge knows no better. They learn that in law school. They've heard it a few times. They go to judicial training and they get trained on that. So they come in with an agenda or with, uh, to use uh, more psychological terms, uh, they come in with a, a preformed cognition or uh, an implicit bias, possibly an explicit bias, possibly a covert bias, that they're primed to expect if a woman alleges violence to be more disposed to her than if a man alleges it. And by the way, uh, by accident, the Judicial Council of California released the results of an internal study where in one study, judges for the same set of facts were 180% more likely to believe a woman. And in the same study, again, uh, they were 680% more likely. This is their own data. They made a mistake of releasing it to me. Okay, so having said that, the payoff... Okay, so first I said, no, I don't think they're being paid off. But now I'm going to say yes, but it's not with money. Uh, every judge, you know, every commissioner wants to become a judge. Every judge wants to become a justice, which is the term for appellate judges, appeals court, Supreme Court. Well, how do you get rewarded? Well, what kind of state are you in? If you're in the state of California, you're probably not going to get rewarded for having made a lot of decisions where, for example, you find that the mother was violent because California is one of those states that says, you know, essentially the feminist dogma of women are only violent in self-defense, even though worldwide data shows otherwise. So the payoff could be you exercise your discretion in a direction that makes you favorable with the powers that can move you to the next level. So it's a little bit more of a nuanced payoff. Hmm. Or uh, the, the thing that judges fear, mm -hmm. judges, it's kind of the wild, wild west. Let me tell you why. They could uh, misuse discretion in 100 cases because they know only one of them is going to go to appeal. Because who has $100,000 mm -hmm. to take a case to appeal, right? So your average poor person... It is a wild, wild west. The judge can do what they want. That's why, you know, what's going on right now with President Trump, where really everybody's seen the misuse of the judicial system. Mm -hmm. That's something, especially like black males mm -hmm. have been reporting for a long, long time. The justice system, whether it be prosecutors or judges, has so much discretion that they can do a tremendous amount of abuse within the framework and get away with it. That's why uh, I'm a little bit on my soapbox here, but I really think uh, judicial reform is overdue and prosecutorial reform is overdue. We need to listen to the people who say, man, I got railroaded because guess what? Maybe they did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, discretion is the playground. There's a study Anybody's listening, Bill Gates. Okay. Now, Bill, you tend to be very woke, left. I'm sure you're not going to listen to this and I'm sure you're not going to respond. But somebody who would like to, I've had a study planned for a couple of years. I already did the pilot 
but it's gonna take a couple of million dollars to do. And I'm not gonna disclose how it will be done, but this study will quantify the abuse of judicial discretion to the point where it can be used to drive reformative legislation. So if you got a few million dollars, go to my website, tells you how to contact me, website for the books. Can I just go ahead and plug it real quick? Oh, AEQPUB.com, AEQPUB.com. Alpha Edward Queen PUB.com. That stands for qualitatum, which is uh, Latin for equal. <laughs> so AQ.com, or you know, just put my book name, the Judicial War Men, you'll find it. Contact me because believe me, you invest a few million dollars. This study absolutely is going to quantify the abuse of discretion. And mm -hmm. that's the beginning of criminal judicial reform, mm -hmm. civil judicial reform, Department of Justice judicial and prosecutorial reform. Yeah. I got on my soapbox. Thanks for letting me. Oh, yeah. I, there's also the issue, and I won't keep you too much longer, but there's also the issue that there is collusion because some of these judges and these lawyers, you know, they chip in for the judge's judge campaign or the judge's daughter's judge campaign, and then things go their way. And the, the parent or whoever gets railroaded. Well, it's somebody you went to law school with. Yeah. It's your ex-law partner. It's somebody you work with together at the public defender's office, or maybe they were at the public defender's office mm -hmm. and you were at the DA, but you went to lunch all the time. And I get it. Uh, professional nepotism is rampant. And that's why at the end of the day, it comes down to a judge or an attorney implementing the code of ethics even if they can get away with not doing it. And in fairness, I know some highly ethical attorneys uh, who are friends of mine and would perish before they would violate ethics, whether someone's looking or not, or whether or not. So I by no means want to paint the legal field or the judicial field with a broad brush. Mm -hmm. But these people would also be the first ones to tell you, yeah, we need reform. And of course, I've, I like to ask the question, why? That's what a scientist does. Well, why aren't you trying to bring about deform, reform? The answer is, are you kidding? If I push, push this too far, judges will abuse their discretion to punish me, and it will hurt me, it will hurt my practice, it will hurt my other clients. This is how judges are able to have strong control over attorneys. An attorney can push it a little bit, but there's places they won't go, even though legally they could. For example, uh, it might be in the best interest of the client to make a motion because you get one free, uh, I'm not going to use the legal term, but when, when a case is assigned to a judge, one time, generally, you can ask for a different judge. Even doing that's risky because if the judge you asked to have removed finds out about it, your next case in front of them, they may exercise discretion against you really hard, but within the framework of the law, because they're sending you a message. Don't mess with me. Mm -hmm. Very true. Yeah. There's a whole layer of politics that are going on and friendship and nepotism that the average person with the case, especially if they're pro-per, which is also sometimes called pro-se. That's me. <laughs> yeah. 
it means basically you represent yourself because you didn't have one hundred and fifty to two hundred fifty thousand dollars to hire an attorney. Uh, you walk into a courtroom and you don't know all these things. You know, there's there's other factors going on that affect your case, affect the abuse of discretion that existed before you will exist after you. They affect you and there's nothing you can do about it and you don't even know about it. Mm-hmm. And these cases are also, then I'll, I promise I'll let you go. <laughs> but these <laughs> cases are also predetermined before you even go in there anyway. It's not unfair to say. Uh, you know, I've watched so many of these and one telltale sign that that might be true you know, you file, depending upon the case, you file your complaint or you file your petition or maybe you're there for a motion to be heard. Mm-hmm. But when you file it and it has evidence and the other party may file a response, some judges, when they start to ask questions, because often they do, you can tell from their questions, they read everything in advance. Whereas other judges, you almost get the impression they didn't read anything in advance and you better make the case during the hearing because they may not ever read what you, that's the impression you get. Mm-hmm. Okay. So for those judges that did read it in advance, wouldn't they begin to form opinions? So when you say they walk in and their mind's already made up, I think a way to look at that would be if they're a good judge, I mean, they're, their whole job is to make decisions. They might, in fact, walk in with a preformed decision. But if it's a good judge, they're still giving you the opportunity during the hearing to persuade them otherwise. Mm-hmm. If they're not such a good judge, they're in a hurry to get to lunch. And let's just see if we can get this hearing done in 15 minutes because the mind's already made up. Now we just go out and perform as though we're actually fair. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. too bad if you get one of those. Yes. And so many people are. Yeah. But because you pay money for a hearing. I mean, most (laughs) hearings you have to not only file your motion, but you have to file an $85 fee or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you never actually got the service you paid for. No. So sad. Again, you know, how can people reach you if they have any questions? Yeah, I think the best thing to do is just go to aequpub.com. There is a way to contact me through there. Uh, only because I don't really, it's not that I don't want to hear from your listeners. I do want to hear from your listeners. What I don't want to do is to get shut down by some of the really malicious folks out there that will do all kinds of mean stuff. So mm-hmm. go to aqpub.com. You'll, you'll find a way to contact me there and that's how to do it. Okay. Is there any advice you want to give anyone? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we could do a whole nother show. Oh, we will. <laughs> strategies about how to be pro per or pro se. I actually have a pretty long list of those. That might be fun to go through. But the advice is this document, document, document. When in doubt, document. If you don't know how to do it, learn how to do it. Document, document, document. Uh, be humble. When you're in court, you can never show anger because <laughs> if the facts are on your side and the law is on your side and you show anger, you might lose. Because mm-hmm. nobody likes it. An, and then you say, but that's not fair. They took my kids away. I realize that, you know, go down to the canyon before court, 
scream your lungs out to your horse, get it out of you, then go to court and try to be humble and gentle and polite because that's what they want to see. Angry litigants, you know, again, I've watched a lot of hearings. Some judges, they'll, they'll overlook that. They understand the emotion of your kids. and But some judges, they're like, you come to my court and you're angry? They could just see that exercise of discretion mm-hmm. moving against them. So be humble, be factual. Another thing that, for what it's worth, uh, I think be brief. Mm-hmm. You know, a friend of mine who's an attorney, he talks about the 10-word telegram. Try to learn how to say things in very, very briefly. The court doesn't want you to ramble on. They don't need to hear, yeah, but this. and They don't need all that. They need the big picture. Right. Definitely. Oh, I'd love to have you come back on. <laughs> yeah. A lot of hurting people out there. The court system has a trail of blood uh, leading away from the front steps. Well said. Yeah, unfortunately, well said. So, uh, hey, don't jump off. Slam the Gallows, a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth, and recently released, Raised by These Wolves, How Family and Federal Courts Are Failing Our Children. Please join us again here with Dr. Eric Nelson in the future. And you can find me on Spotify, YouTube, Apple iTunes, Anchor FM, iHeartRadio, and feel free to donate to buy me a coffee to keep this podcast going. Thank you so very much, Dr. Eric. Thank you. It was an honor. It was an honor. That's what I think. (laughs) 